0: It's such an honor and joy to be with you, and thank you for putting up with me. I appreciate it greatly, and it's such a joy for Cheryl and I to be in the most gorgeous cathedral God could have created called Montana. What a joy to be here. And I want to say thank you for the privilege uh, that Luke has given me to be here. But I want to say to you, thanks for being who you are. To experience what we experience Thursday night, to experience your kindness reaching out to us, your welcoming heart and spirit to us that makes us feel at home right here. I could not tell you how much that means, and that is not normative as you cross America. Trust me, because I've been in church after church after church. You have something special happening here. And I pray you understand you're blessed to be a part of it. Speaking of blessing, you may or may not be aware that nationally today is Pastor Appreciation Day. This month is Pastor and Staff Appreciation Month. And I think it would only be fitting before we did anything else to stop and acknowledge Luke. Tyler and Marcus and Allison and how God has blessed you with their leadership and for you to say to them in a very special way, thank you. We love you. you. Well deserved. Well deserved. And I hope during this month you'll find ways to let them know how privileged and appreciative you are them because having been in ministry for many, many, many years, I want to say to you that these are the hardest days I have seen in my entire life to lead Christian ministry that I have experienced in the entire journey. So it's very important that on a regular basis you find ways to say to them we love you, we support you, we're shoulder to shoulder with you, And boy, you nailed it Thursday night. Well, let's start and get in the Word. If you've got the Bible, or if you've got a smartphone or an iPad or whatever it is you use, please have it handy. We're going to look at Acts 8. And as you get to Acts chapter 8, Mark Twain, the great theologian, said this. There are two critically important points in the life of every person. One is the day they are born. The second is the moment they understand why. The day they were born and when they understand why. It was in Washington, D.C. several years ago, 1982 as a matter of fact, that the worst snowstorm in recorded history in Washington, D.C. was occurring. On that day at Reagan International Airport, that is called today, Air Florida, was sitting filled with passengers. There were 79 that day, passengers and crew. They would leave Washington, D.C., headed to Tampa, and on to Fort Lauderdale. They could not wait to get out of that just catastrophic snowfall. But the plane was held, because of weather conditions, for an hour and 49 minutes at the jet plane. When they finally were given clearance to back out of the jetway, they found the plane could not back up for the snow had caked around the tires. And so the pilots thought, oh, let's put on the reverse thrusters. Now that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But if you don't have a lot of experience in snow-laden weather, to put on the reverse thrusters does one thing primarily, and that is it ingests the snow and ice into the engines. On that morning, unknown to the pilots, who neither one co-pilot or senior pilot and had much experience in snow conditions. Unknown to them, it froze the thrust control valve on top of the engines. As they backed out and went to the taxiway, it would be on the taxiway that they would be delayed for another 45 minutes. Now, if you know much about planes, And you know much about what it takes to get lift, to get into the air. You know that an hour 49 minutes at the jetway and another 45 minutes on the taxiway, even if you have been de-iced at least once, you're on the edge of catastrophe and trouble if you wait that long in that kind of weather. It was finally after 49 minutes on the taxiway. That air traffic control said, Air Florida, you are cleared for takeoff. And at that moment, that pilot jammed those throttles forward. If you listen today to the air control recording of the cockpit, you hear the right side seat say to the left side seat, are you sure we need to do this? Do we need to stop before it's too late? The captain dismisses it, they take off, and because those thrusts are, those thrust valves are frozen, they don't really know how much thrust they're getting or not getting. As they lift off immediately, all 79 on board know we've got a problem here because the plane begins to vibrate and shake madly. Over on the 14th Street Bridge, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's the number one primary access into the city itself. On the 14th Street Bridge, constantly there are planes going off from Reagan, constantly passing over, but not at 15 feet. And on that day, that plane would hit four cars, would kill four motorists, and plunge into the ice-laden Potomac. Lenny Skutnik was walking home that day, he was a federal employee that worked in the bowels of one of Washington's bureaucracies. And as he walked home that day, because he left his car knowing he would just be in a landlocked situation, he walked toward home, and he heard the thundering sound of the jet engines just above. He watched it crash, and he watched it only in moments sink below. Now, some of you are old enough to remember when it happened And you remember that suddenly the news came in. Air Park police came in with helicopters trying to drop lines. Only five of the 79 would live that day. They would drop a rope to a man by the name of Arlen Williams. Every time Arlen Williams, one of the passengers, got the rope, he would hand it off to somebody else. He would die that day. The last person he would hand it off to was a lady named Kelly Duncan. She was a flight attendant. She was freezing. Hypothermia had set in already. She got a hold of that rope, and Lenny Skutnik saw her just about ready to go under. And he thought, somebody ought to do something. But there wasn't anybody else there than Lenny Skutnik. Suddenly, he threw off his heavy coat, he took off his shoes and he dove into the ice laden Potomac, pulling Kelly Duncan to the side. She was critically injured. They rushed her to the hospital. And while she was recovering in the hospital in Washington, D.C., a nurse said, Kelly, It's obviously God would not through with you yet. Do you know him? The more she got to know the nurse, the nurse would say, Oh, I'm just a follower of Christ, brilliantly disguised as a nurse. <laughs> During that time, she introduced Kelly Duncan to Jesus Christ. When Kelly Duncan would get out, she would marry a Christian man by the name of John Moore. And Kelly Duncan would become the director of children at First Baptist Church in Perron, Florida. Think of that. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, never to harm you, but to give you hope and an amazing future. Kelly Duncan experienced that. But Lenny Stutnik, let's go back to him. A guy embedded in the bureaucracy of a Washington, D.C. hierarchy. Nobody knew who he was until shortly thereafter, Ronald Reagan acknowledged him in the State of the Union address to the entire nation. Called him what he was. A hero that made a difference in the lives of others, One man who got out of his comfort zone, who was willing to take a risk, and the rest is history. In Acts chapter 8, you come to a point of a story that is an amazing account. Beginning in verse 26, it's about a man named Philip. He had been a lay leader in the church in Jerusalem. He had never been to a cemetery. I mean a seminary. He had never been to one of those. He is just a regular guy. And he helped the church get in a solid position of growth in that early Jerusalem city. The church had grown by thousands. And then the government resented its growth. And they began to choke it and control it. Now here's the issue of reality about what happens. When pressure comes on, whatever is really inside comes out. That's exactly what happened to the church in Jerusalem. When the pressure came on, what was inside men and women whose lives had been changed spread out. And God took a man named Philip and took him to Samaria. It's the last place any self-respecting Jew would ever want to go. Why? Because in the Old Testament, when Assyria invaded Israel and took Israel captive, they also took occupation of Israel. And those who took occupation intermarried with Jews, and the half-breed kids were called Samaritans. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples and he said, Hey guys, come on, we're going through Samaria. And they said, What? No way. Remember the woman at the well in Samaria? You see, Jews would do anything they could to avoid Samaritans. God takes Philip out of Jerusalem as the pressure comes on from the government, he takes him to Samaria. And he begins to have beasties there. And people turn to Christ in droves. Have you ever been to a place where God's really working? Have you ever been someplace where you can almost sense the presence of God? It's really tempting to want to just say, Boy, let's just stay here just like it is right now. And God goes, "Mm, Nope. (laughs) Don't think so. And it says, beginning with verse 26 in chapter 8. And at that point... The Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. So he immediately started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a leader from Africa. Today, you would call this nation, he was from Sudan. He had come all the way from Sudan to Jerusalem, and he was an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia or Sudan as our day would call it. This man had gone to Jerusalem in order to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. He was reading a scroll. He was trying to understand and the Spirit of God said to Philip, go up to the chariot. Stay near." And Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet and said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I? Unless somebody explained it to me. You see, here's the reality. It hasn't changed a bit. People today only come to know Christ when somebody who's already met him helps them know how. And know the difference he can make in life. And so it says, and Philip began with that very passage of scripture, because it says he was reading Isaiah 53. It was prophetic passage saying there was one who was coming, a Messiah, who would be like a sheep led to slaughter. And right there he began explaining to it, this is what it means. This is what it means to you. And this is the difference it can make in you. Somewhere on that road. As that leader from Sudan invited Philip into the chariot with him as he explained what he was reading meant, somewhere that man opened his heart to Jesus Christ. His life was transformed, and he became a brand new creation. We don't know the details. We don't know everything that was said, but we know what the result was. And as they traveled, it says in verse 36, along the road, they came to some water. And the leader from Sudan said, Look, here's some water. What stops me from being baptized? He ordered his chariot to stop. And both he and Philip went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And he never saw him again. And the man went on his way rejoicing. I want to give you four points this morning. Number one. Philip met a perplexed seeker. Philip met a perplexed seeker. It says this man had come all the way from the continent of Africa, the nation of Sudan as we know it, all the way to Jerusalem in order to what? Worship. It says he was seeking for something to fill the hole in his heart and his life, but he found that nothing could fill. He had now traveled all the way to the mid-eastern focus of Jerusalem to try to find an answer. And now he was headed back home having not found it at all. Philip met a perplexed seeker. I want to say to you, they are all around you in Kalispell, Montana. Perplexed seekers are everywhere you look. They're at your school. They're at your living neighborhoods. They are at your uh, social events. They are at Relationships of networks that you have, they are everywhere. When Cheryl and I met and got married, later God would take us to Atlanta for the first time. And in Atlanta, we moved into a cul de sac. Everybody there was Southerners. They all talked like this. They all <laughs> ate fried catfish. They all had grits. I thought grits were something you put wallpaper up with. I had no idea what those were. And then God took us away. He would bring us back some years later to Atlanta again. This time, Atlanta had radically changed. The Olympics had happened, and Atlanta's complexion was so different. We moved into another cul-de-sac. Remember the first one was filled with Southerners? Let me tell you about this cul-de-sac. On the corner was a, a couple from Belize. Next to them was a couple from Korea. Next to them was a couple from Vietnam. There was a couple from India. There was a couple from South Africa, and then there was a couple from the foreign nation of New Jersey. And they all, they all lived lived in one cul-de-sac. You see, the world that you are living in, in Kalispell, Montana, is not the world of your mom and dad anymore. You see, today there are 7.7 billion in the world. Do you understand that by 2050, it's projected that there's going to be 9.5 billion that's 25% growth just by, nine, uh, by 2050. In the 1990s and early 2000s of the United States, white people like me, well listen to this, white people like me grew 0% in the United States of America. In the same time of the 90s and early 2000s, African American, Hispanic, and Asian grew by double digit numbers. You see, my world is changing. And it's just though God who gave us uh, the uh, United States of America that became the greatest mission sending agency in the history of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evidently didn't think we were doing it fast enough, so he's bringing the world to us. It is amazing how it's changing. Do you realize that today in kids going to public schools, one, Out of every five has at least one foreign-born parent. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Asians today are the fastest-growing segment of the United States population. Hispanics are the second-fastest-growing. Wow, it is a different world. And people say to me, well, what do you think about this, Bob? I say, I think it's great. (laughs) Why? Because in Revelation chapter 7... When John sees a vision of what heaven will be, listen to what it says. And then, suddenly, I saw a crowd, so great in the number that no man could count. It. And they were from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne of God, saying, Worthy is the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they all cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb that was slain. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm going to spend an eternity with them, I better start loving them right here. And God wants me to be a part of a kingdom that doesn't just look the same. And He wants the same to you. He had been born ethnic, that perplexed seeker. And many of them you're going to run into will be as well. He had been to the big city. It says he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. It was one of the class cities of that day. Do you realize in America that in 1800 6% of America lived in rural areas. I mean in cities. Everybody else lived in rural areas. 6%. By 1900 it was 39%. Today 82.6% of America live in cities. There has been an amazing movement towards city and urban living in the United States of America. He had been born ethnic. He had been to the big city. Oh, listen to this one. He had been to the big church. Because it says he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. There he had gone to the temple, obviously. And now he came away. Do you know what the average church size is, the median church size is in America? The median church size in America is 75 people. The top 15% of churches in all America, the top largest 15% is 350 and up. Do you realize you're closing in on being one of the largest churches in America? He had been born ethnic. He had been to the big city. He had been to the big church. I remember when Cheryl and I went for me to be the president of the North American Mission Board in Atlanta, one of the largest mission sending agencies in the world. This is for the first time in many, many years. We went to look and find the church. Because so often before that, churches were looking for us to come to be with them as pastor or staff member. We'll never forget going to church after church after church, visiting. It was an amazing experience. We would go in and have opportunity to worship. And as we did, let me tell you what was in common. Not one time did anybody say, do you know anybody here yet? If not, why don't you come sit with us? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody would say to us, you're new? Hey, what are you doing for lunch? If nothing, why don't you come have lunch with us? And every place we walked into, and these were some really well-known churches, there were people at the doors, and they called those people what? Greeters. Yeah, that was great. Every place we walked into, the greeters were talking to the greeters. (laughs) And we hardly ever had a greeter welcome us. Now here's what I'm going to say to you, ladies and gentlemen. In Kalispell, Montana, one of the loneliest places in the world can be when you go into a church and you know nobody there. All those who are already there, they already know each other. And they know the inside humor, they know the inside stories, they know the history, but you don't. And you sit down... And nobody comes up to you and says, we're so glad you're here. Mind if I sit with you? Hey, why don't you just get up and come back and sit with us? You see, it's one thing to be greeted. It's another thing to feel greeted. It's one thing to say, we want you here. It's another thing for when the people leave to say, I was wanted there. It's all the difference in the world. He had been born ethnic. He had been to the big city. He had been to the big church. And all that he left with, with big questions. Ladies and gentlemen, California, New Mexico, there are tons of people with big questions who need a church, who doesn't care what the person looks like, what background they're from, who loves them where they are, but loves them too much to let them stay there. And that needs to be you at Veneration. Philip met a perplexed seeker. Number two, Philip was a prepared messenger. He was a prepared messenger. Never once does it say that Philip had to say, Oh man, if I go up to that chariot, what in the world am I going to say? It just says God said, Come on, Philip. Watch this. You see, Philip, I've not only been at work in your life, I've been at work in his life. And what I'm about to do in bringing you two together, you're not going to believe. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Jesus is beginning to call his disciples. He says he stops by the Sea of Galilee, and he stops by Andrew and James and John, and he says, up until this time, you've been fishing. Now, there are a lot of folks here who love to fish. But you also know that when you catch fish, it dies. And Jesus said, from this point on, I'm going to challenge you not to waste your time fishing for that which dies, but catching men and women. And seeing them come alive. And it says that they left everything and followed him. Or how about Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When it says, just before Jesus ascends back into heaven. He says, and after the Holy Spirit come into your life. You'll receive power. And I want to tell you that when you receive that power. You're going to be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem. That's right where you live. Then in Samaria. That's where you have to start crossing some boundaries and then in Judea, and then in the uttermost parts of the world. He says, I want you to start where you are, be on a mission to change your world, and understand you can do it if you're just available for God's use. After all, when he said you're going to be my witness, what is a witness. Here's what a witness is. It's not a person who knows everything. It's not a person who has every answer. A witness is simply this. It is a person who is willing to straightforward and honestly testify to what they have personally experienced. That's all a witness is. Wow. How about 1 Peter three fifteen. First 1 Peter 3.15, the book says, set aside Christ Jesus in your heart as Lord, and then, always, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you, but do it with gentleness and grace. I have some people as I cross the country, when I talk about being on a mission where you are, they'll say, what well, about you don't understand? I witnessed by my life. Good! Not very biblical, but good! Because you see, if all you do is witness by your life, and you don't include your lip, all you really proclaim and witness to is your own goodness. Because the other person has no idea What it is that's changing you And making you different Samuel Shoemaker who was a great businessman Struggled with alcohol Came to know Christ And Christ transformed his life I'll never forget a thing he said He said I cannot witness by my life alone I must include my lip For if I witness by my life alone I proclaim too much of me And too little of him That's good If I witness by my life alone I proclaim too much of me and too little of him. So Philip understood that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, And we are Christ's ambassadors. It is as though Christ were calling through us for others to be reconciled to him. Cheryl's my son, Brian, is a diplomat for the United States. He serves in embassies all over the world. He works with ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? Here's what an ambassador is. It is a person who is specially chosen by the sovereign authority of their land to be that sovereign authority's representative wherever they are placed. So when God says you are his ambassadors, it is the sovereign God with all authority specifically choosing you and planted you exactly where he needs you so that you could be his representative exactly where he has you. Wow, what a story. I know. Some of you are thinking, but but I, I don't know enough to be a witness. Cheryl, stand up and say hi to folks. Yeah, that's my brother. 49 years we have been blessed to be together and let me tell you how she came to know christ she was raised up in a church that didn't really talk a lot externally about your personal relationship with jesus christ when she went away to indiana university where we met both we met the lord and each other there she said to god god i don't know that you exist i mean i've grown up in the church but what i see isn't very transformative <clears throat> and I sure don't understand how in the world somebody would be willing to die for this. So, God, you've got six weeks. In six weeks, show me that you exist. If not, I'm done. It tells you a lot about my bride, doesn't it? <laughs> Every Sunday at Indiana University, there's a party school, big time in the Midwest. She would get up early. She would go to a church. And nobody, listen to this, nobody said to her as a college student, Man, we're glad you're here. Can we introduce you to some other folks? Do you know Jesus? Nobody. So she went from one church to another church to another church. It is now five and a half weeks. Jesus has three days left. <laughs> when a girl walks up to her and says, Hi, can I introduce myself? I'm Andy. Name is real Andrea. But she went by Andy. Andy. She said, I'm in a music school with you. I use music school as one of the top five in all the world, and it is profoundly competitive. She said, I'd love to get to know you. We're in the same kind of challenge. Why don't you come over where I live and let's just talk. And in the next couple of hours, Cheryl just thought they were talking and getting to know each other. Looking back on it now, she understands that in her own way, as best she could, Andy was telling Cheryl how she had come to know Jesus Christ and how Cheryl can do it too. She would use terms that Cheryl hadn't heard very much, like knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, being born again, trusting Him as Savior and Lord. And and when she was done, she finally said, Cheryl, have you ever made that decision? I I don't know. Do you know that you know that you can be sure that if life ends, you'll go to heaven? Cheryl said, "I, I was raised to understand you could never be sure. Oh, but you can and why don't you do this? When well, you go back to your living place tonight, think about it and just ask God to show you. That night, the girl went back to her room. She just couldn't rest. She couldn't sleep. She got up and said, God, I need to talk with you. God, I still am not sure you're real. But if you are, show me that you are. And enter my life and change me in a way that I know it could only be. My wife's life was changed that night. Now, here's the amazing thing. Remember when she went to Indiana University and she said, God, you got six weeks. Remember it was five and a half weeks until God said, here's how it happened. It was only three weeks prior to that. That means it was two weeks after. Cheryl said, God, you only have six weeks that Andy came to know Christ as Savior. It was three weeks later that she shared in her own way, struggling as she could, to my wife, and it changed her life. Listen to me. You do not need all the answers. All you need is a willing heart. You take the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit to open the door and share and then leave the results to God. You're not responsible for the results anyway. And if you were, they wouldn't last. Because God alone can change a heart. I have others who say, man, Bobby, if I had a big mouth like you, I, I, I'd be willing to do that more. The first guy I ever trained how to get his faith away was a guy by the name of Joe in Wichita Falls, Texas, where Cheryl and I live. Now, if you've ever been to Wichita Falls, Texas, it's in the Panhandle, you know that out there they talk like this. <laughs> You can go asleep in between words. (laughs) If you get through a paragraph, you're in a coma. (laughs) That's how they are. They are salt of the earth people, but that's how they I would work with Joe on how to give Christ away anywhere, anytime, under any conditions to anybody. I taught him five points and one scripture for each point. Joe, if you'll just share them in this order. Each point with one scripture because people only have 20 minutes, it'll be amazing what God will do. Okay. I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble. I'll remember the night finally when I said, Joe, now if we find anybody tonight, I'm going to turn to you and say, Joe, why don't you share how you came to know Christ how they could know it too? Alrighty. (laughs) We didn't find anybody that night until the last home when I knocked on the door. And when the door opened, a guy as big as Scott Stood there. He had to be 6'7, six, 6'8. Six, he had on gym trunks, a tank top, hair sprouting everywhere. He had on a beer can in his hand and a cigar in his mouth. He said, Hello, what do you want? Nothing. I mean, I was nervous beyond words. He said, Are you guys from a church? I thought, How does he know this? I said, "Uh we don't want to bother you. And then he said, I just told my family tonight, we're in a mess and we need somebody to straighten us out. You're it. And he grabbed me and threw me. I'm falling. I'm I'm falling in the floor I look out and Joe is standing at the door His eyes are like you know, silver dollars And he's saying I'm never going to see my family again They take us in He calls down his wife and his three changed daughters He sets them down And here's how he introduces us These men are here to change you That's a great introduction I'll never forget I so said, Joe, why don't you share with them how you came to a crash honor. It. Remember the five points? Here's what happened. Joe started at the first point. He jumped to the fifth. He came back to the second point, to the fourth, and he ended with the third. Remember I told him 20 minutes? 57 minutes later, Joe said, does this make sense? Keith? I want to tell you what I felt like screaming. Joe this doesn't make sense to God. And he wrote what he just said. <laughs> and then I looked over at this mountain of man. And he said, with tears running down his cheeks, I don't know that I've ever heard anything clear. His wife said, I would have to say the same thing. And then his oldest daughter said, Sir. I don't know what it is exactly that you've got, but whatever it is you've got, we need. Can we have that right now? And I watched Joe leave mom and dad and uh, three teenage girls on their knees around a coffee table to accept Jesus Christ. As I was leaving that night, God said to my heart, (laughs) you think it's all about the right words the right time in the right order. I think I showed you tonight that it has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with a willing heart taking the initiative and leaving the results in my hands. Philip met a perplexed seeker. Philip was a prepared messenger. Are you? Philip shared a powerful savior. Notice his message was not primarily about church. His message was primarily not about activities or events. His message was primarily about the one who had changed his life. I don't know what happened in that chariot, but I do know some things he had to have shared. He had to have shared what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He had to share, you have to have a new beginning. Some call it a new birth of being born again. He had to share you can't earn this or deserve it. The only way you can get it is by receiving it as a gift. Like 79 did Thursday night. And he had to share that thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. is one called the adversary, Satan. The devil. And he'll do everything he can to destroy and kill you to kill your integrity to kill your joy to kill your life to kill your marriage to destroy your future he'll do anything he can and promise all kinds of good things while he at the same time pulls the rug out from under your life in first peter 5 8 could you say it a different way be on the alert because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see, he wants to do anything he can to stop veneration. He wants to do anything he can to stop you. He wants to do anything he can to make you ineffective. He walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I understand something about that, having a hundred lions. You see, a lot of people get awed by their majesty, like that guy. But if you know anything about lions, you know that this isn't the main killer. The females are in their pride. They are vicious, and they are machines in killing. It's amazing how strong they are. They'll take on a Cape buffalo, the most feared animal in the continent of Africa. Killed more hunters than any other animal alive over there. And the size of them, just look at the size of the paw. It's massive. Those are my hands in the pall. I can well identify with Tyler, who faced that grizzly. You ought to see the picture of that grizzly's tag. You see, there's one focus of animals like this or a grizzly, and that is to kill whatever it is they're on the prowl and move for. There's a reason, he said. The adversary's out to destroy you and stop you. I've come, that you might have life and have it abundantly. I remember on this, I remember tracking that cat for hours. I remember the further we went, the more we saw a turn, for the old cat was circling us, and the hunter was becoming the hunted. And I remember when we finally got to a point where it sounded like the universal joint fell out of the truck We had just burst through some hard brush. And when the tracker got down to look under the track, I heard him start screaming and yelling and pointing. I could not understand a word he said. But what he was pointing to was a tree and nobody ever told me that cats there also go up in trees. And 27 yards away that cat was waiting for our truck to come right in below. Because you see, those things roar can be heard five miles away. Those things can run 50 miles an hour. That's 50 yards in three seconds if you want a good idea and comprehension. And when they're in a tree, they can jump 36 to 45 feet. All you have time to do is react, in the All you have time to do is prayerfully just respond. And all you can do is turn and shoot. I remember when it's over, 1 Peter 5.8 came to my mind. Be on the alert. Be aware. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And my professional hunter who was with me said, I wasn't going to tell you before, but I will tell you now. These things are killing machines, and you Westerners, you're afraid of the teeth. You ought to be afraid of the leg and the claws, because when they hit a human, it's like a baseball bat hitting a grape. I say that to you to say this. In 2021, we sort of look at Satan and hear about him as the devil and think, yeah, we know he's out there. I want to tell you, he is about serious business. And he is ready to stop you. He is ready to derail you. He is ready to destroy you. Of that day in that chariot, Philip had to say, but there is one who is greater. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if anybody comes to him, that person will have a brand new beginning. For he said, I alone am the way, I alone the truth, I alone the life, and nobody, nobody comes to the Father but through me. His message was a powerful Savior, last one. He stopped, and Philip shared with him a permanent reminder about what he had just done. Somewhere in that road, that man from Sudan accepted Christ as Savior, and somewhere, Philip shared with him that the first step of obedience is believer's baptism. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you follow him immediately in believer's baptism to say to the world, I am not ashamed of the one I accepted. I wear a wedding band. It says I belong to Cheryl. It says I don't belong to anybody else, nor am I interested. But when she gave this to me is not when I started loving her or she started loving me. This was only an outward sign of an inward reality. That's what baptism is. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And it says, and they stopped when he saw some water. And Philip went in the water with him and baptized him. In the name of the Father and the Son he had just accepted and the Holy Spirit that he had just received. And when he came out of the water, it says he was a brand new man. And suddenly... God miraculously took Philip to another assignment, and it says that man went on his way rejoicing. You see, there is a divine order in Scripture. Here is the divine order. Every one of us needs to come to a conviction of our need for Jesus Christ and be willing to humbly say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I ask you into my heart as Savior to forgive my past as Lord to direct my future, and I surrender my life to you. That's the conviction. The conversion happens when I make the decision to make that decision and act on it, like Sunday night did Thursday night. Conviction, conversion, and then confession. And the first major confession should be following him, a believer's baptism. You know the saddest part I find in a lot of churches in America? There are people who often have experienced all three of those but they're out of order. Somewhere they had a baptism experience, but it was before they came to the point of knowing that they knew that they knew that they, knew they accepted Christ and settled it once and for all. And then after they did, they get embarrassed about putting it in order. And here's the reality. Until it's in order, obedient wise, God has blessings. He's holding back that you won't release until it is. How do I know that? Because I was one of those. You see, I went forward in 10. They made over me and congratulated me. They made me fill out a card and took me into the water and made me really wet. It was until I was 19, almost 20, that I really accepted Christ. And when I did, I was embarrassed to go back to my church and say, I need to do what I've already done because it was out of order when I did it. And so I went on to seminary and I went on to churches and find myself as a co-pastor of a church. And a man came and preached on being in right, divine order. Conviction of your need for it. Conversion by your decision to receive it. Confession by following him and believers baptism in that order. When he gave an invitation to respond, people came from everywhere, saying they were out of order. I'll never forget that night. I was miserable. I was down helping people who had come and responded. And I was just praying, God, get this over in a hurry. And finally, he said, I'm about to close. And I thought, Whoosh. And then he said, but I feel there's at least one person in here who needs to admit they're out of order. And I'm going to just ask one more verse to see if that's true. Standing down here, I had to turn around and say, I'm the man. I'm the one that's out of And I'm supposed to be one of the leaders of this group. And that night I had to humbly come in front of my whole church and experience real believers' baptism. And since that moment, God's blessing has never stopped a day. And it won't until He takes me out. I just ask this. Is it possible that there's somebody here today that's out of order just like I used to be? Philip... Found a perplexed seeker. They're all around you. Philip was a prepared messenger. Are you? Philip told about a powerful savior. Are you ready to go right to that message? And he left him a permanent reminder. That was baptism. That made clear that the future was different. As the worship team comes and joins me on stage, I want to just ask you one last question. When Philip was taken away by God and the man went on his way rejoicing. Where did he go on his way rejoicing to? Back to Africa. Back to Sudan. And probably was the first impact of the gospel in the continent of Africa. Ever. It would later be Thomas and Mark, the apostles who walked with Christ, who would also have phenomenal impact in that nation, that country, that continent. But it was the man that Philip met who opened the door of the gospel to the continent of Jesus Christ. So what difference did it make, ladies and gentlemen, if today is an average day in the continent of Africa, 20,000 people will accept Christ today. And 20,000 people more tomorrow, and 20,000 people more the day after that, and every day of In 1900, in the continent of Africa, there were 9 million African Christians. What a return on investment from Phillips' encounter with that leader, huh? But today, there are 541 million Christians in Africa. All because one man got out of a comfort zone, took a risk said I'm going to be on mission where God's with me how about you in Calistown what if Lindy Scott when that plane crashed had just stopped with the statement somebody's got to do something and never been willing to be the somebody you see that's what God needs in just a moment I'm going to ask If you've never come to a point of knowing that you know that you know and being sure that you're sure that you're sure that you've asked Christ in your heart as Savior, therefore, to forgive your past, whatever it holds or does not hold, but also your Lord, and therefore giving you the freedom to direct your future, then that day can be right now. And this can be the beginning of a brand new journey for you. That nobody can make the choice for you. You've got to make it for yourself. And today, couldn't be that there's somebody out of order just like me. And today, you need to say, I need to get it in order. In just a moment, as we stand, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to be sure that they're sure that they're sure just to step out and step forward. Or anybody who's out of order and wants to be in order because the team here is prepared to work with you in making sure that baptism happens soon. You'll be amazed the difference it'll make when everything's in proper position. Now, I know some are saying, man, public? This is a private thing. Oh, no. You see, this book says, Jesus himself said these words, he or she that confesses me before others, that's the person I'll confess before my Father which is in heaven. That he or she who does not confess me before others that's the person i will not confess before my father in heaven so you see it's not just a private thing it's a public thing of which no one should ever have a hesitation others. others might say what would these people think if i do that i'll tell you another thing those who have already settled those issues will break into applause because they'll know it's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. And they will so support you and encourage you and walk with you. Others are saying, man, it's a more convenient time. Over and over in this book, it says now is the day of decision. Choose you this day. Last. You see, I've spoken in a to them. And I always hear some say, It seemed like such a long way to just step forward and step up. Well, today, before we started, I went to the top of the bleacher. It's the furthest point away. I walked it. You want to know how many steps it is from the top of the bleacher? It's 35 steps in the front. You want to know how long it takes? It's 25 seconds, walking slowly and measured. So here's my question. Jesus Christ who hung on a cross for you and you and you for hours and suffered unbearably for you for hours. Worth or not worth? 35 steps maximum. 25 seconds at the most to come and say today I need to make a decision. Would you stand with me?